Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. 338,000 children. That's how many American kids have been exposed to gun violence at school since the Columbine tragedy. Now imagine this. You survive a school shooting in high school only to arrive at college and be the victim of another one. That's what happened to at least three students at Michigan State University last night. I'll talk to the father of one girl enduring that nightmare tonight. Also, Parkland survivor David Hogg will be here with his thoughts on the five-year anniversary of that school shooting. Plus, Nikki Haley throwing her hat in the ring for 2024 against Donald Trump. How will she now deal with her head-spinning contradictions and positions on Trump? And Ohio's governor says he would not drink the water in one part of his state. So what are the people of East Palestine supposed to do 11 days after that toxic train derailment started spewing hazardous chemicals? Aaron Brockovich is here tonight with us. But I want to get right to the aftermath of the mass shooting last night at Michigan State University. Joining me now is Matt Riddle, whose daughter Emma is a freshman at MSU and was a senior at Oxford High School during the school shooting there just 14 months ago. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to talk tonight. Um, it's, it's almost unbelievable that you all endured this nightmare 14 months ago when she was a senior in high school, and then you have this recurring nightmare last night. How do you and she even process what's happened to, to her in the past 14 months? Yeah, no, I do appreciate you having me on. It's been, you know, uh, unexpected and pretty incredible that we've you know, had to go through this again with Emma. And you know, she's a fantastic, strong young woman, and she's doing the best that she can. And I think one of the things that has been heartbreaking for me is for her to acknowledge, you know, this time may be easier because she has tools that she developed the last time she went through this. And I can remember thinking after the Oxford shooting that, you know, okay, you know, you survived and it's tragic and you lost friends, but this will never happen again, right? It's just, it can't. So you've been through it and this trauma is something that you've experienced and, you know, you're done, right? That's kind of what your brain tells you. There's no way it could happen to someone, somebody twice. Yeah. And, and Matt, how crazy that, uh, well, she's getting better at it. You know, she's getting better at right. surviving school shootings. I mean, that this is the world that we live in where we see that as a victory somehow. And so Matt, just tell us what was happening last night when this, when this right. all broke out on her campus. Um, I know that she mm -hmm. was in touch with you. What was she doing? How was she coping through all of that? Yeah, so she was in her dorm room and she's with her roommate and they, you know, they're they're good friends and they were able to support each other and they had gotten the notice around 8:30 to, you know, shelter in place and to go into lockdown. So she sent us a screen cap of the notification they received from Michigan State telling them to head to lockdown immediately and she lives on a high floor in one of the dorms and they were luckily, you know, they're home so to speak in their dorms, so they locked the doors, they barricaded, they shoved dressers in front of the bathroom door, which is a shared space. And their, you know, their, their entry door, they closed the windows and they hid under their desks for the next three hours. And, you know, the first few minutes was a lot of confusion and unknown. And then when there was confirmation that, you know, there was indeed, you know, a mass shooter on campus or a, an, a you know, a shooter on campus, that's when she did call, you know, as a parent, right, it's heartbreaking to hear, you know, that fear in her voice again. It's something that, you know, I'll never forget the first time. And now there's a second time and you're just, you know, you're heartbroken because all you want as a parent, right, is to protect your children and to keep them safe. And you know you can't, you know, and you're handing them off to college and you want them to have experiences and live, but, you know, it takes a piece of you that they're going to go through something like this and then to have it happen again 
uh, is, you know, and have her relive some of the things that happened the first time is, is just it's tragic that we've allowed that to continue occurring. You must have felt so helpless, Matt, while she was calling. A hundred percent. You know, you want to be, I'm about, you know, an hour and 10 minutes away. And, you know, your first thought is, okay, I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to drive. We're going to get there. And then you realize you can't because you, you can't interfere with the first responders and the police doing their jobs and campuses on lockdown, of course. And I, I would say this time, because it took so long, you know, to kind of process from the initial, you know, uh, incident to the, you know, kind of conclusion, it was almost three hours. So that was an incredibly difficult, long three hours. You're just, you know, we're talking over text, calling occasionally, whispering, you know, to kind of maintain quiet. And then obviously, you know, trying to keep track of what was happening any way that we can, social media, scanners, whatever it might be, and kind of just continuing to help support her and just say, listen, you know, you're, you're in as safe a place as you can possibly be in a situation like this. So just keep your head down and, you know, we're thinking of you and we're talking to you and supporting you and, you know, we're going to get through this. And so, Matt, now that there's trauma upon trauma, so she so she had mm-hmm. trauma at Oxford High School. She sounds like recovered from that as best mm-hmm. she could. And now this second trauma, how is she today? And and what what are the next steps here? Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, she's definitely, you know, doing the best that she can. And again, you know, like we referenced earlier, she has tools from last time that she's putting into place. She understands what's coming over the next few days, over the next couple of weeks. You know, and her sister, that's her sister, Lily, and she's here supporting her as well. And we're just able to kind of, you know, help her just give her some space to, you know, to grieve and to you know, be calm and not have things to do and just be present. So, I mean, I was able to stay off this week and, you know, be with her. So you know, there's not a lot you can do. You know, it's going to take time and it's going to take, you know, you're going to have to go through some things. And to your point, sometimes that trauma is going to stack on top of each other. You're going to have things that occur that remind you of both of those events at the same time. So, you know, for me, just kind of making sure that I'm as available as I can and can provide any resources that I can to her, you know, to be able to work through this again. And Matt, I mean, as you just said, that living through something like this as a parent takes a piece of you. What piece, what piece is lost now? You know, I, I think at some point there may have been a little bit of, again, like I said, you kind of rationalize it the first time. This can't possibly happen again there's no way it's mathematically unlikely right like you know i'm an engineer and i think it's it's, there's no way and then you say well it did so what does that mean well what it means is that we're failing people like my daughter we're failing students we're failing children because we refuse to acknowledge that there's a problem let alone take the steps to resolve that issue and i say that as a country and i say that as somebody that you know lives in a you know an area that maybe i'm probably the minority in but you know, until we take some sort of action, and you know, I hate, I, I hate, I start getting angry when I think about it because I feel like you know I can't imagine the parents of you know Columbine when I was in college or Sandy Hook, etc. They've been feeling this anger and frustration for years that nothing has changed and nothing is happening, and why can't we make progress and you know keep our children safe? Yeah, is she going to go back to school next week? She is. They they do go back to class on Monday. I mean, we've had it. We talked about that a lot today. You know, she's got some time to process. She understands that, you know, college, high school, they were off for almost six weeks. You know, they had a lot of time, a lot of community events, a lot of things they could do together. You know, college is different. It moves a little faster. There's more kids involved. So I know they have to kind of keep things moving. So at this point, she's going to be off for us the week home with us. Well, you know, that, that drive back on Sunday is going to be tough, you know, kind of redropping her off and putting her back there and, you know, trying to just expect, hey, you're going to be safe this time. We, you know, we hope. And that's going to be a difficult moment. But, you know, she understands and she loves MSU. She loves the campus. She loves her her program there, her history, history program. So she wants to participate. She wants to be there, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. 
Well, Matt Riddle, we're thinking of you and Emma. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, we hope that she continues to be strong through all of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The shooting at Michigan State University coming just hours before the Parkland, Florida community marked five years since the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Here's what President Biden had to say earlier. And today marks five years, five years to the day that 14 students and three educators lost their lives in Parkland, Florida. I met every one of those families, spent time with them all. And uh, a lot of you here have to confront violence in your communities every single day. We took a big step toward passing the most significant bipartisan gun legislation in 30 years, ghost guns and other things, background checks, but there's a lot more work to do. And uh, I'm committing to getting it done with all of you. Joining me now, the first student I met five years ago when I landed in Parkland, Florida to cover that school shooting. David Hogg is the survivor of that school shooting and the co-founder of March for Our Lives. David, it's always great to see you, even though it's always in these horrible, horrible situations. What did you think just listening to that father of that daughter who's now in the past 14 months has survived two school shootings? It's frustrating. And unfortunately, it's not surprising to say the least. Look, Allison, I think the reality is here, um, most of the time, this is the first time really ever on the anniversary of the shooting that I've spoken out. And it's because I felt spurred to after what happened last night and we've seen happen over the past five years. I think that we need to change the conversation and break the cycle that we have of an action and debate. And we need to realize that there is common ground for us to work on here, even if it's small in the first place. You know, we. Most of us agree that we need to fund mental health, mental health to prevent gun suicides, for example. We need to get more information and research to figure out how to stop these shootings in the first place. And I would say to anybody that's out there, you know, especially uh, Republican lawmakers, that if you're interested in working with me on that, DM me. I've had conversation, DM me on Twitter. I've had conversations with Republicans privately, and I know that there is room for progress here. But until we break the cycle of in action and debate and turn it into one of dialogue and conversation and action, I'm going to keep having this conversation 10 years from now with you. Yeah. And I know you've been working on that, David. I mean, I followed you around Capitol Hill one day. You've been working on this. You've been trying to get any lawmakers who will listen and who are open to try to come to the table and have common sense solutions. Um, Speaking of research, Here's another staggering bit of research. The Washington Post quantified how many kids have lived through a school shooting since Columbine. So a school shooting at their high school. I mean, we tend to think of it in terms of the victims who were killed, but these are the kids who survived. You're one of these figures. So since this is the children exposed to gun violence since Columbine, in 2018, when uh, the Parkland uh, massacre happened, there were 187,000 children who had lived through a school shooting. Today, it's almost doubled. In 2023, there's 338,000. That's just such a staggering number. Do you have thought? I mean, that's the ripple effect, David, that you and I have talked about. It's not just the victims and their families. It's all of you who carry this memory with you. Right. It is a horrifying ripple effect. And, you know, uh, forgive me for this next part. If I sound angry, I don't mean to. I'm just so frustrated at the fact that we're still in the same place. Look, it's time for us to end the debate that's brought us here. And it's time to start the dialogue that will get us out of here. I have a special message, special message for the Republicans and conservative gun owners who don't agree with me in the first place. Look, I can respect 
people who don't agree with me, but I can't accept that there is nothing that we can do as Americans to keep the number one thing we all care about, which is our loved ones and especially our children safe. But if we continue this debate over and over again, we're just going to remain here. We need to turn this debate into a dialogue and a conversation to make progress on this. We've acted in a bipartisan way after Parkland. Our GOP state legislature passed a red flag law that has now been used over 6,000 times in Parkland. And one time, Allison, it was used for somebody who sent a death threat to my own mother. That law that we passed after Parkland may have prevented me from having to bury my own mother. Is any law perfect? No, obviously. But we can make meaningful progress in a bipartisan way on this. We did that this summer as well with the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. But until we put our politics aside and start pushing for what we can agree on together, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as Americans united to protect our kids, we're going to remain here. And the reality is we have to put those politics aside because your town could be the next Parkland. And I don't want anybody else to have that reality. So if you're a GOP lawmaker that's interested in figuring out where we can have common ground and have a good faith conversation about what we can do as Americans to address this issue, let's do it. Because I don't believe that there is anything that we can't do in this country. And if we can land a man on the moon, I think we can stop our kids from getting shot, too. David, you're allowed to be angry. And I didn't know that story about your your own mother um, and you know her having received those threats and how close it came. And that's terrifying. I mean, obviously, on every level, you have been dealing with this. Is there one thing, one action, David, after these five years that you think nationally we could start with? I think nationally, it starts with just getting more, more research funding in the first place. Like, the reality is... Um, there are similar issues like sepsis in terms of the number of people that unfortunately die from that every year that get nearly a billion dollars in funding from the U.S. federal government and other government agencies to research it. Last year and the previous five years, on average, we've gotten about 25 to 50 million dollars to study the number one leading cause of death for people under the age of 19 in this country, which is gun violence. We need to start by getting the right answers and funding research more. And I would love to work with conservative members in the House on that so we can get it through appropriations and avoid the filibuster. And I want to have that conversation. So if you are one of those people, please contact me and DM me on Twitter. Um, I hope that they take you up on that, David. Last, five years later, today's the anniversary. How are you and your classmates doing tonight? You know, I can only speak for myself. I know that everybody... In experiences this day differently. But what I will say is personally, despite, unfortunately, the, the, the lack of progress, but also progress that we've made, personally, I'm doing better. It was the first day that I got a Valentine um, from the person that I'm going out with, and it wasn't triggering. It made me happy. Um, and I'm starting to see that as part of my personal healing journey. And I'm really happy that I've been able to do that. And I hope others are as well on this day. Happy Valentine's Day, David. I really, that's a really sweet story. And uh, we pray for all of your continued healing and progress. And we always appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Well, she's running for president. Nikki Haley is also jumping headfirst into the culture wars. Is that a winning strategy? We're going to discuss it next. South Carolina's former governor, Nikki Haley, announcing today that she's running for president in 2024. She's the first candidate to challenge Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. Here's part of her video announcement. 
some people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. Okay, let's discuss what this means with Carrie Sheffield, senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Also, Molly Jean-Fast, host of the Fast Politics podcast. She's also a special correspondent for Vanity Fair. And CNN political analyst, Estad Herndon, national political reporter for the New York Times. Great to have all of you. Okay, Carrie, let me start with you. Are you excited about her jumping into the race? Well, I love Nikki Haley. I do. I've been a big fan of her for a long time. Uh, I used to work in Israel for a while back when the um, the consulate was in Jerusalem, and now it's an embassy. She stood up. She was very courageous about that. She stood up for human rights in China when she was at the UN. She brought the country together when she was the governor of South Carolina. So I love her. I really do. I just don't think the timing is on her side. I think that timing-wise, she's only at 4% in the polls. I think that— Well, she just got in today. Yeah. I mean, there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> This is true. Um, however, I think that the base is going to have a hard time getting behind her if you look at the reaction just so far. Why? Um, they, they perceive her as being disingenuous in the sense that she promised that she wouldn't run if Trump was running. She broke that promise. Got it. Molly. That's not why the base doesn't like her. Why don't they like her? The base doesn't like her because they've gone autocrat and they can't go back. I mean, she'd be a great candidate in 2004. But right now, this Republican Party wants red meat and they want someone who doesn't believe in a lot of the tenets The whole of Republican Party or the Trump wing of I, the Republican Party? I think party. what you're going to need to win a primary is not where Nikki Haley is. And I think it's too bad. I mean, there's a, you know, I think that as she has a lot to recommend her, especially as a Republican. And I think she would govern in a more normal way. But I don't think the base is there. I said, what about her sort of flip flops on on yeah. Donald Trump? So we'll just well, we'll just play a couple. Here's her on Trump's truthfulness. Donald Trump is everything I taught my children not to do in kindergarten. I taught my two little ones. You don't lie and make things up. What about his truthfulness? Did you think he was a truthful person? Yes. In every instance that I dealt with him, he was truthful, he listened, and he was great to work with. That's not all. I mean, just just <laughs> hold, hold your, hold your uh, comments on that. There's more. Here he is on whether or not, here she is in 2016 on whether he should disavow the KKK and then how she felt five months later. I will not stop until we fight a man that chooses not to disavow the KKK. That is not a part of our party. That's not who we want as president. Are you going to vote for Donald Trump? Are you going to vote for him? Of course. Is this going to be a problem? I mean, it is going to be a problem. It already is a problem. That is part of the reason why she's polling down there. I mean, it's the, it's the challenge with being a consensus candidate in this Republican Party. Nikki Haley's uh, task here is not just to convince Republican voters to vote for her and that she's a good candidate and all the rest. It's to convince them to completely change what has been the motivating factors for the Republican Party in the last decade. She needs to make this go from being a grievance-driven party to a forward-looking party, which is what she's trying to pitch there in that video. That is a huge, 
task. Because I think, as they're both pointing out, it is not just Donald Trump who made the Republican base be really motivated by the, the kind of culture war e issues. That is what they are motivated by independently. Mm-hmm. And that's what Nikki Haley is going to have to contend with. What about, I would, oh, yeah, go ahead, sorry, I would just disagree as far as who is the grievance base. The mm-hmm. grievance base is the hard left. The grievance base believes that America was founded at its very core to preserve slavery. And that's a, that's I mean, a lie. An insurrection that's a does show lie. grievances. By the I, way. I mean, the fact that the right, that, that that the was right universally, wanted an insurrection, that's pretty aggrieved. Yeah. I mean, that was universally condemned by the vast Except majority of voters who are part of the America First movement. And I think the, uh, the, the grievance idea is, 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 is certainly on both extreme wings. That is for certain. I just think that when you're talking about, for example, the Senate Budget Committee uh, for, you know, on the, the left has been run by Bernie Sanders, an avowed socialist who for so long in the Senate was on the fringe. And now yeah. he's welcomed. He was the second runner up in the Democrat Party. But, that but, is grievance. I hear you. He despises capitalism. Uh, okay. He despises the yeah, foundations I mean, yeah. of If Bernie Sanders country, was running for president, is, I feel like that would right. be all of reasons why he wouldn't be yeah. uh, right. a, a favorite Trump, among a Democratic base. I mean, that is second. But hold on, Karen. My question was about Nikki Haley. Do you have a problem with those flip-flops that we just heard? Well, that, that, that's what I'm saying is that I, I, I'm not picking a favorite in this fight. I, have, I, I will be Switzerland. In the end, as a conservative, I want the most conservative candidate. So I'm not, I'm not going to endorse Nikki or unendorse her. Um, but I, I, I but think are you she comfortable has... with that? Because doesn't that show a level of disingenuousness? Well, no, and that's what I'm saying. I think for the base that that is that is a big problem. So, and you know, some people you know wrote an essay saying, "Oh, the base doesn't like her because she's a woman and she's a woman of color." That's simply not true. Wow. Carrie Lake has shot to the top of the charts. She's a woman. Candace Owens is adored by the base. She's an African American woman. So it's not about your gender. It's about your behavior and and whether or not you're consistent as a leader. Okay, go ahead, Molly. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is on, you know, is is like practically leading the Congress. Okay, she was the Jewish space lasers woman. I mean, I don't think that the Republican far right is the same as the left. And by the way, the Democratic president is a man called Joe Biden. And no one would say he's far left by any stretch of the imagination. He's a very centrist candidate. So I don't think of old Senator Biden. I think President Biden is a different person. Well, I think it's hard for me to see Joe Biden as a socialist. Yeah. And that's what she's saying there. Anyhow you put it, Haley's problem is among the Republican Party. Yeah. So so you don't think she's going to gain traction in the primary? I mean, that that's her biggest issue here is not just she has a base among donors. She has a base among a kind of D.C. conservative class and among a a, a vision of Republicans that is more analogous to what they have used to call them. Themselves. But Donald Trump has taken over the Republican Party. And that does not mean that he is automatically the next nominee. But that does mean that the way the party has transformed is something Nikki Haley has to contend with. And that is why we see this waffling left and right, because she has been trying to find a lane to contend with this version of the Republican Party. Okay, folks, just stand by. We have um, so many more topics to cover. Please stand by, because we also have major concerns tonight about toxic contamination in an Ohio town. This is after the derailment of that train that was carrying dangerous chemicals. Now thousands of fish are dying there. Some residents are complaining about illness. So we're gonna discuss what's being done next. Big concerns tonight about air and water quality in East Palestine, Ohio, where a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed 11 days ago. Residents complaining of headaches and sore throats, thousands of fish dying in the waterways after this spill. 
Tonight, Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine, says it's absurd that he was told that the train was not carrying highly hazardous material. Talking to me about what's going on, we have consumer advocate and environmental activist Aaron Rockovich. Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time. Really been looking forward to talking to you. Can you just tell us what is life like tonight in East Palestine? They're they're very concerned. They're very scared. They're very confused. They haven't been getting information. They've been getting misinformation. Uh, This uh, situation occurred February 3rd. As soon as early morning, February 4th, I started hearing from the community. They were being evacuated. They were being told to shelter in place. It was a one mile radius. They weren't getting the information they needed. They were concerned at that time because there was reports of children uh, who were having difficulty breathing. Uh, There was a bad smell in the air, children throwing up. Parents were just panicking to get out. And so as they were out, we were still weren't getting much information about what had happened, how severe the contamination was. They were worried it would explode. So they set their own fire to call just to release the chemicals. So the situation started to really escalate. They are still very uncomfortable. They're now reporting that their chickens have died. There's reports that people raising the foxes have died. There's reports that their chickens have died. There's many reports of thousands of fish that have died in the creeks and the rivers and the streams. And they are scared to death. And they're still not getting answers, only to return home. And now 11 days later being told, don't drink the water. Yeah, I don't understand, to be honest, exactly what the message from Governor DeWine is. Let me play for you what he said in this press conference today. I think that I would be drinking the bottled water um, and I would be continuing to uh, um, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Um, I would be alert and and concerned, but uh, I think I would probably be back in my house. Is that the best guidance? I mean, what, he, he would be finding out what the tests were showing. What are the tests showing? He's now telling them to be drinking bottled water. I just I, I'm a little bit confused about why this message is muddled. I, I'm very concerned. And this has kind of been going on during this entire disaster, talking out of both sides of the mouth, if you will. And that's even been happening with the agencies. Testing isn't even near complete. The testing that they are relying on is coming from Norfolk. So this is a situation where the people don't trust at all. And I would have never advised the community who'd been evacuated to come back home until you had an all clear. They were told to come back home too soon. They now don't believe that it's safe to live there. Many won't come home. And now a big disaster. Don't drink your water. Don't drink the well water. I mean, this has been mishandled. It's out of control in the state. And I really believe at a federal level, this administration has to get involved. This is a huge train derailment, a huge disaster. You're transporting hazardous chemicals like vinyl chloride, and nobody seems to know about it. This doesn't smell right. It's very fishy. This community has every right to be up in arms and not trust what they're being told. Yeah. Vinyl chloride is a known carcinogen. Um, It's been linked to lung cancers, I believe, um, liver cancer. Uh, Meanwhile, another thing that Governor DeWine said at the press conference today was just what you were talking about, that he wasn't told that it was uh, carrying hazardous 
material. So let's just listen to that moment. This train apparently was not considered a high hazardous material train. Therefore, the railroad was not required to notify anyone here in Ohio about what was in the rail cars coming through our state. Uh, even though some rail cars did have hazardous material on board, uh, and while most of them did not, that's why it was not uh, categorized as a high hazardous material train. Uh, frankly, uh, if this is true, and I'm told it's true, uh, this is absurd. He says, if this is true, it's it's demonstrably true that it had hazardous chemicals on board. We can see the toxic plume. Absolutely. It was known from day one, the minute the derailment happened, that it was vinyl chloride and that there was 10 cars full of it. A million pounds have been released into the air. So there is such a breakdown in communication. The fact that you wouldn't know that, I'm not sure I do believe that. But this is, again, 11 days on, and you're just now coming out with this information. So, again, to every concern that this community has had, it's been mishandled, miscommunication. They don't trust it. They don't believe it. This has spiraled out of control. And absolutely, the current administration needs to step in here and address this, show up and find out what is going on with these people and And the word is now that it is breached and it's in the Ohio River. You could be looking at an impact on 25 million plus people. This, I have not seen anything like this in our history of something so disastrous and so mishandled. And my concern is for these people and getting them accurate information, getting them to safety, keeping them out of harm's way and letting them know the truth about what you do know or the truth about what you don't know before you ever let them come home. We'll see if uh, federal officials do get involved now. We'll see what the governor's plan is for East Palestine. Aaron Brockovich, thank you so much for bringing this uh, so acutely to our attention. And of course, we'll stay on it now. Thank you for having me on. A terrifying 21-second nosedive toward the ocean. This plane almost plunged into the Pacific. We're going to hear from a passenger on that plane and exactly what went wrong and what the pilots did. Tonight, the NTSB says it will investigate the scary plunge of a United Airlines flight towards the Pacific Ocean shortly after takeoff. The plane took off out of Hawaii in December, and then it suddenly plunged into a nosedive and came within 1,000 feet of crashing into the Pacific. It plummeted 1,400 feet in 21 seconds. A passenger describes that moment of sheer terror. It certainly felt like a roller coaster. I, I mean, it, you, you get to a peak. And except, you, you know, most everyone didn't know what was about to happen next. You didn't know you're about to go down. So, you know, feeling that pressure, feeling, you know, just, uh, again, the tenseness of the situation, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you start counting your blessings. You start, you know, asking yourself, is this the last time you're going to see your family? Okay. I want to bring in CNN safety analyst, David Susi, a former FAA safety inspector. David what is that? What caused that plane to plummet like that towards the ocean? Was that turbulence? Well, there's a, a, a part of turbulence. It's actually a wind shear, which is a little bit different than turbulence is part of it. But a wind shear as actually a, like a front is coming in or there's a direct 
change in the temperatures and that friction between those two fronts, between those two pieces of air are what caused this. The airplane starts to climb because it thinks that it's got all this air in front of it. It starts to climb. And so the engines are being pulled back. It's slowing down because it's rising. And then suddenly it goes into the downward air, speed, air, air system, which then the airplane doesn't have enough movement now to keep the airplane above. So it starts to just plummet. And I can only imagine how frightening that must have been. Yeah, me too. I can't stop imagining it. And I thought that that planes now had technology to avoid wind shear. They do. They have onboard sensing that tells them what's going on on the airplane, but they also have ground sensing as well that tells them a lot about what they're going to approach. So all, both of those things should have kicked in. They should have known about it. Uh, whether they didn't, it, I mean, this is a very unpredictable event. Even when you have all this uh, technology behind you, it can be very, very unpredictable and hard to tell when that's going to happen or when it's not. Yeah, I don't like to hear that, David. So the pilot, the the plane came within a thousand feet, as you can see from this animation, of going into the Pacific. How did the pilots recover it? Well, uh, it was very hard. There was a lot of G's coming back on him, a lot of a lot of weight. And as you could hear them describe, it was like a roller coaster when you're going down that roller coaster, but take that one, that 200 foot fall in a roller coaster and multiply it times 10. They were falling for 20 seconds. And then at the bottom of that, they had to re-get the aircraft. Now, as a pilot, when you're trying to regain that airspeed, you have to get airspeed over the wings. So you can't just pull it back again because it'll just stall again and keep stalling and stalling and do what we call step stall and just continue to go down. So what they had to do is get as close as they could to the ground, get as much airflow as they could over the top of the wings. At that point at which they have that airflow that they need, then they can pull back. If they pull back too soon, then it's it's going to be catastrophic loss. But I think they did a magnificent job of waiting until the last second that they could to pull that aircraft off because if they'd have done it much sooner, it could have ended up much differently. Thank God for those experienced pilots. Uh, David Susi, thank you for your expertise. I'm not sure that it's made me feel any better, but it's great to talk to you as <laughs> always. Thank you very much. Now I want to bring in Emma Goldberg, business reporter from the New York Times. Back with me also is Molly Jongfast, a famously frightened flyer <laughs> and a stead Herndon. Molly, you have been, for 10 years, you didn't fly because you were so scared. Yes. And I'm a scared flyer too, but I can't take 10 years off. So how did you get back on a plane? Because my husband was like, you seem nuts. <laughs> like, he was like, we can't live like this. He but, was like, but therapeutically, how did you, how did you find the strength so, and courage to do so it? So I went to a bunch of different shrinks, and the thing that worked for me was exposure therapy. And I went to this guy in Connecticut, and he made me fly. And he flew with me a bunch of times. How far did you fly? We flew. He would have groups that he would take to Boston or Washington, and we'd fly together, and he'd explain what was going on. But more importantly, he would say, like, your anxiety is not real. Like, the way you feel is not what's really happening, right? Like, you may feel a bump and think you're going to die, but the reality is you're much safer than driving to the airport. I know, and everybody always says that, Emma, but I don't, it doesn't comfort me because then there's wind shear that comes out of nowhere. 
I might need Molly's guy because I was having some <laughs> secondhand panic. I was in a uh, on a flight last week when we hit some turbulence, and the the person near me started praying, and I had that moment of like, should I be praying? But I think it also is part of a mounting concern that airlines are prioritizing profits over safety and comfort, and you know all the basic checks that people want to feel comfortable in order to get on an airplane. And you know, it's there's just been a spate of these near crashes, the meltdown and. Southwest around the holidays. And I think people want to know when they're getting on an airplane that it's really safe and really comfortable. You're right. We're not neurotic. It really is happening. <laughs> it is happening more and more, right? We need the DOT to do more and to talk about it more and to address this. And so hasn't say, Secretary Buttigieg been doing that? I think he could do more, especially right now with yeah. this train derailment. Like there have been a number of transportation related uh, disasters, for lack of a better word, and I think that it's time for him to come out. And you saw President mm-hmm. Biden in the State of the Union try to talk about airport fee, you know, talk about, like, kind of things that were tangible to people as a thing to bring up. This is something that is tangible to folks. And to Emma's point, you know, there has been a number of these that have really caused we anxiety have a hold to that, shoot Hold up. that thought for one minute, because the FAA just today announced that they will be looking at these things. Everything from the January 11th um, outage that halted domestic air yeah. travel. There was the stuff over Christmas obviously. There was the near collision, as Emma was saying, at JFK Airport and near collision at Austin Airport. Yeah, and I think that that comes after what is them trying to react to what is anxiety among the public. And that is something that has shifted really quickly. I think coming out of the midterms heading into the year, the White House was kind of banking on this being kind of like a hopeful year of uh, of being able to communicate policy differences. But things that are very much out of their control, things like airplanes, things like unidentified flying objects, things like Chinese (laughs) spy balloons can change all of those feelings in a second. And so I am not surprised that they're taking those actions because I do think that anxiety is really setting in for people, even on something like airplanes, which might be unavoidable as a means of travel, but it's still sitting with us all. That that graphic still has me shook. <laughs> me too. I hadn't even been including the UFOs, but thank you for adding that in as well. Thank you all. Okay, a startling new revelation in the death of Gabby Petito. An attorney for Petito's parents say says that Brian Laundrie's mother wrote a letter to her son with references to a shovel and burying a body. It also allegedly said, quote, burn after reading. New developments tonight in the case of Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie. An attorney for Gabby Petito's parents, who are suing the Laundries for emotional distress in connection with Gabby's death, is demanding that the Laundries turn over a letter that Laundrie's mother wrote to her son. In it, she allegedly referenced offering to help bury a body. The envelope also allegedly contained the words, quote, burn after reading. Gabby's remains were found in Wyoming after the couple's trip there, and her death was ruled a homicide by strangulation. Brian Laundrie returned to his parents' home in Florida, but eventually disappeared and took his own life. In a journal, he admitted to killing Gabby Petito. His mother's letter was allegedly found in that backpack. An attorney for the Laundries confirms that the letter exists, but says it's irrelevant to the Petito's lawsuit. Well, the U.S. is already outpacing records for mass shootings this year, and we're only 45 days in. How do we get to solutions?
The Michigan State University community is in mourning tonight after the school shooting that killed three students there and critically injured five others. Tonight, a source familiar with the investigation tells CNN the shooter had a two-page note in his backpack referencing a desire for other shootings. Officials still trying to determine a motive. They say the shooter did not have any affiliation to the university. Now I want to bring in the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit. She's also a graduate of Michigan State University and the author of Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. We're so sorry for what the Michigan State community is going through today. I mean, we heard about how this just huge family of Spartans, as you all are known, um, between parents and alumni and students, it's vast and you all stay in touch. And, you know, what a tragedy this is for everyone. Being as steeped in this subject matter as you are and knowing the campus as well as you do, having gone there, is there anything that could have stopped what happened last night? I think that we are we don't really have the answer to that yet, right? Because the FBI and Michigan State Police and others are going to do the backgrounding on this individual who did this shooting to see maybe if there were tells and there were signs and there were people who saw something and didn't say something, which is, you know, kind of my my biggest fear, of course. But I think in overall, you know, I think we have to use when we when we push together what everybody wants, which is the answer to the motivation for why this guy did this, looking for the motivation is really helping us to find the next shooter before they strike. And that's what we, that's why we want to continue to look for the information about why this guy did what he did. Not because we can make him not do it, but because we can make the next guy not do it. But we don't seem to be doing a very good job of stopping the next one. I mean, there seem to be more and more mass shootings. It's not just a feeling. It's, it's the truth. Just this year, there are only 45 days into the year. There have already been 67 mass shootings, which are defined by the sh- uh, four or more people being killed or injured. And so we just haven't figured out. Well, well I mean, you've written the book on it. What is the answer to stopping these? Yeah, and the numbers are a little tricky. I mean, to be honest, right, when the gun violence archives and the others who are tracking, when they say mass shootings, they're saying four or more or three or more. You know, the FBI doesn't use a, a, a number um, of how many more, but the, they're looking at a whole vast on the landscape of violence. So it might be, that might be a murder-suicide or a domestic violence or gangs or drugs. But the ones that you know, we are dealing with today, this situation, the Parkland situation five years ago, Northern Illinois University, uh, exactly 15 years ago today, five killed, 17 injured. Those types of shootings, you're right, those are here in our face. And we're like, why are we not able to combat that? And, uh, you know, I have maybe a maybe a somewhat controversial view about it, but having worked on this for so long, you know, the answer is that we as uh, citizens are not willing to accept our, our responsibility for it. And that's kind of frustrating. The individuals are out there, they're conducting themselves the same way, and we are not choosing to accept to see what they're doing in preparation what for would, these kinds of killings. What would we have to do differently? I think that we, um, it, you know, as a whole, the individuals who we're looking for, they're, they're isolated in their mind. They believe they're isolated. They have a real or perceived grievance, and they believe that the world is against them or somebody has grieved them. 
and that they are alone and no one is helping them to solve whatever these issues are, whether they're main issues that we see in FBI research or behavioral experts, financial problems, relationship problems, academic problems, work problems, mental wellness problems. When they feel that there is nobody there to help them, then, then they come up with these plans to do these kinds of violent acts. We are their social structure, you know, our family members and our workmates and our, you know, siblings and parents and neighbors, and we're not taking on that responsibility. I think the way that we did after 9-11, where we said, see something, say something, no terrorist is going to attack my town again. Well, we've done a great job of that when it comes to international terrorists. We just really haven't done a great job of it when it comes to domestic terrorists, because we're not seeing something and then saying something. We're seeing it, I think, but we're not saying it. One of the things that I learned from the Sandy Hook parents who have formed, you know, all of these um, activism groups is that every single school shooter, without one, without fail, sends off warning signs beforehand. There's never been one that did it silently. They all send off warning signs, and we need to be better trained to see them. But with this guy, he wasn't a member of the community. This is a hard one. His father, from, you know, the, the reporting that's happened today, we know that his father felt that he was in the middle of a meltdown of some kind, a mental meltdown, ever since um, his mother died, the shooter's mother died, and he would stay in his room. And his father would try to, right. to get him out. His father would try to get him to the doctor. He stopped communicating. He would only come out to eat. It's hard to ask a parent to be equipped to know what to do about that. What's the answer there? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we saw that with Sandy Hook when a parent is the one who's there. And look what happened in Sandy Hook. The shooter killed his mother first. Right. And and 10 percent of these situations, they kill a family member before they go out and commit the act of violence. It, it is a it's kind of a it takes a village kind of concept. Right. The even though this individual wasn't part of our Spartan community, this individual was part of other communities, whether that was in the neighborhood or in a work situation. Most of these people do work. And you're absolutely right about what the Sandy Hook parents told you. It's so true to form. FBI research showed that the concerning behaviors, because that's what we're looking for is concerning behaviors, um, concerning behaviors for students, for school shooters who are students, 92% of those students telegraphed they leaked their, by words, they leaked what they were going to do to somebody, but it didn't get back to the right authorities. And, and I think that I think that I would just follow one other thing about that. thing is that everybody wants to say, I don't think he meant it. I don't know it's a big deal. He's kind of a grouchy guy. He's always like that. He's always been a crab at work. You know, all of those excuses, those are excuses that we give ourselves to not report something. And, and what I would say to everybody who might know about somebody that they're concerned about because their behaviors have changed or they have, they have heightened concerns about them is like, if you have spidey senses that are telling you this guy is just, or gal, but most of them are guys, this guy is just not, he's not right. And there's something bad, report it, report it to a tip line because you don't know and in Michigan, that would be safe to tell. And other states have different ones. FBI is a tip line. Report it because you don't know what law enforcement has already on file about that person. You don't know what other agencies have on file. And if we don't have those pieces, we can't piece it together. Understood. It, it's going to take all of us to be more proactive 
for sure, because they are not going away. Uh, Catherine Swike, thank you so much for being here with your experience. Thank you. I want to bring in now Carrie Sheffield, senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum, Jim Walden, a former federal prosecutor and CNN anchor, John Berman. So there's got to be a solution to school shootings. There just has to be. I just spoke to David Hogg from Parkland. As you know, he's the Parkland uh, survivor, one of the many Parkland survivors. And he said, we can put a man on the moon. We have to be able to solve school shootings. And I, I appreciated that Catherine, who we just talked to, draws a distinction in mass shootings between those that are gang related, those that are domestic violence, those that are, you know, big city crime and school shootings. Because let's just take one of them. Let's just tackle one of them. If we can't fix all of them tonight, let's tackle one of them. So school shootings seems like a good place to start because they are so shockingly common. So do you have a solution? So I think that nationally we're not taking this issue seriously enough. I mean, we have a federal agency that's very well funded to make cars safer. Uh, we have seatbelts, we have airbags, but we don't have a federal agency that's really looking at the issues surrounding gun violence in schools and elsewhere. We need a firearm safety, a safety administration that is well funded. The ATF, the, the uh, Department of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, should focus on firearms crimes placed in that agency with more agents to do more enforcement, more regulation, more enforcement. And that may not solve the problem. But if that agency also studies the specific examples that we've seen across the country, they can also make schools safer, safer. So we, we need to tackle it at a federal level. Carrie, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can have the policies, and that's an important thing. Uh, but I think there are lots of other things as well. Uh, one that you mentioned, um, school shootings. So after Sandy Hook, there's an app developed called the Say Something Anonymous Reporting System, where people can uh, you know, report what's happening. And exactly what Catherine, that FBI agent that you interviewed, mentioned, that when there is, you see something, you should say something. And what this app does is it allows you to anonymously say something. Only 7% of schools have downloaded and are using this regularly. They say, that it's prevented 13 planned school shootings. Uh, it's prevented 406 children contemplating suicide to receive help. I think that's a big thing that proactively can be done pretty easily. It's a yes. pretty low bar. Everyone can get an app on their phone really easily. Um, there's a program also called Rachel's Challenge, which uh, which is uh, was developed by the father of the first Columbine victim, and it's been trained. It's trained 30 million students and teachers. It teaches anti-bullying, empathy, because as Catherine mentioned, a lot of these these individuals, they're mentally disturbed, they've been bullied, they've been ostracized. So oh, yeah. it's a two-way street in terms of helping bring them into the fold, helping them feel empathy uh, in a mutual way. There's a pattern for sure. But as I was telling Catherine, I don't know that parents or any of us are equipped to know, in the case of certainly Sandy Hook, when you have a kid who is completely like non-communicative and has shut himself in his room, how you're supposed to reincorporate that person. This shooter also sounds like something was going terribly wrong and his father was trying. But, well, but I, and, I agree, and I think that's where the federal policy can come in on the mental health piece of it, because our mental health system is, is in, for example, with this Michigan shooter, he, was, he, went, he basically devolved when his mother died yes. of a stroke in 2020. His teeth were falling out. He refused to get his hair cut. He refused to go to the doctor. Yeah. You cannot, unless you go to court and get mandated, his own father could not force him I to know. go to, unless he gets custody. I know, and I it know. is so hard to get custody of people who are mentally ill and incapacitated. And and here we because are. Because of our federal policies. John, thoughts? Well, when you say we have to be able to solve this, the question is who's the we here, right? Because I think for the last several years, decades, people have been looking to Congress to fix this. And they've shown not that they can't, but that they won't uh, step in and try to take action. This past year, they did pass the most substantive gun control legislation 
that they have gun safety legislation that they have in a generation, the, the, the Safer Communities Act. And it did address those red flag laws. And that's an area where I think there is promise that we, all of us, not just Congress, can get involved in. There are states, not all of them, but states that do have these red flag laws. And now the issue, as Carrie correctly pointed out, is how are they implemented? And people are learning, uh, mostly through failure, as we saw in Colorado in that nightclub shooting there. I mean, there are red flag laws in place that have not worked yet, but you can tweak them and make them better. And I think there is hope, or we should hope, that we can make them more effective than they are now, because at least that could do something. Absolutely. I mean, again, I don't know that we cure everything overnight, but every single thing incrementally that we can do, we must do. This was also very interesting. In the Washington Post today, they talked about the ripple effect, the traumatic ripple effect. So our hearts bleed, obviously, for the victims of these um, shootings that have died. But even the survivors are never the same after this. And so I don't think we've ever seen it quantified before, the numbers of how vast this problem is. But since Columbine, the Washington Post looked at how many kids have been at school when there was a school shooting and have the residual effect of it. So in 2018, that's the the, uh, date of the Parkland shooting, there were 187,000 kids in America who had been at school during a school shooting. Now, five years later, exactly to the day, it's almost doubled, 338,000 kids. And they carry all of the emotional wounds and they'll never be the same. But this kind of goes to the point of we may not be able to solve every problem. You're not going to keep a gun out of everyone's hand. But the but the Scientific American and CDC have put out studies showing that gun safety laws actually result in fewer gun deaths. And in those states that have no gun safety laws and no gun control laws, there are just more killings per capita. I mean, gun violence has outstripped traffic accidents uh, now for the last 15 years. So... While we can talk about all these policies to try to identify these troubled kids who might get into this, unless we get the guns and make them safer, this is just going to keep happening and the shootings are going to keep getting bigger and bigger. No conversation can omit guns, I would say. That has to be part of the conversation. Whatever the solution is going to be, we can't ignore that we are awash in guns. guns. Thank you all very much for your perspectives. Next, it's the biggest culture war buzzword in the country. But what does it really mean when we say woke? People have a lot of different definitions. We'll discuss. The GOP continues its so-called fight against woke and cancel culture, often by canceling culture that they don't like. But what exactly is woke cancel culture? New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu tried to answer that this Sunday on Face the Nation. Here's what he had to say. It's the divisiveness we see not just in our schools, but in our communities where it is me versus you. Whereas if you are not adhering to um, my ideals, then I'm going to cancel you out. It is us versus them. It's this binary where everything's a war. That's a cultural problem we have to fix in America. And it starts with good leadership, good messaging, more hopeful and optimistic. But government never solves a cultural problem. We can lead on it, but we never solve it. 
Okay, back with me, Carrie Sheffield, former Congressman Mondaire Jones joins, and John Berman. Honestly, um, Congressman, we are so rhetorically tangled up at this point, I've lost track of who's canceling whom. I really have. <laughs> I can't remember anymore because the Republicans decry cancel culture, but it's people like Governor Ron DeSantis who keep canceling curriculum, books, different teachers. Different, like, I can't, I, what does woke, just out of curiosity, what does woke cancel culture mean to you? Can you define it? You know, I, I respectfully, I would push back on a on a, a concept that doesn't actually exist, right? Like, far be it from me to try to rationalize the nonsense that I hear from my former Republican colleagues and people leading that party. I think what it really means is anything that makes them uncomfortable and that they don't like, and specifically in the political context, that can be weaponized to do the, za- the same kind of dividing that we just heard Chris Sununu denounce on television, unfortunately. I mean, when you were banning books... When you are banning the use of the word gay in in school settings, which erases an entire community of people, when you are um, when you're saying that you want to transform certain universities into other kinds of universities and and you accomplish that through firing board 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 of trustees members, this is all stuff that's in furtherance of um, ginning up, I think, fear within some segments of society and and the hope that those that's going to translate into votes for you. Carrie, that's not how you see it. Well, I do agree it is about trying to translate fear into votes. And what it is trying to translate, I would say, is that the I would describe the woke left as trying to cancel Western civilization, trying to cancel the fundamentals of what America was built upon, trying to say that America's founding was, was inherently to preserve slavery. That's what the 1619 Project, which is funded by the New York Times and won Pulitzer Prizes, it's a joke historically. It is ahistorical. It is not true. The United States was founded to, the point to where, destroy where, the just, monarchy. Just, just, I hear you, but let me just say, aren't we getting to the point where people like Governor DeSantis are not allowing any sort of black history, an AP black history course he wants to be um, eradicated from high school? Isn't that important to yeah. have that part of history? No, no. What, what he did with that specifically was to say Black Lives Matter theology, if you will, is going to be optional. It's not going to be mandated because there's no balance in the curriculum of CRT and of the curriculum of Black Lives Matter. There was no mandating of equal treatment of black conservatives, for example. I didn't see, okay, Clarence Thomas, Frederick Douglass, Zora Neale Hurston, black conservatives, they are given short shrift. There's no balance in this curriculum. And so he says, I don't believe a curriculum should be teaching children to hate each other and to divide people on levels of privilege. That is a rejection of Dr. King's dream. That's ultimately to me. Yeah, it seemed like he was just getting rid of it with a broad brushstroke. Do you have a Yeah, so just just to make a number of factual corrections here, he didn't say anything about Black Lives Matter being optional. He said it can't be taught. And then it was the college board, which I think make the wrong decision of saying, well, and, and they would say it's not in response to what Florida was doing, but we know it's in response to what Florida was no, but doing. The, no, but the and date of the signing it, was, it, and, before, and so, was before he made you, any if statement. You finish, so. If you'll let me finish. Uh, and so what ended up happening is that that was optional. Look, there's, there's no requirement that certain topics be given the same amount of time in terms of their coverage, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can't just pretend like the Black Lives Matter movement, which we know now is the largest social protest movement possibly in American history— uh, is, is is something that, like, you just don't get to cover because it makes you, as, you know, a white conservative, uncomfortable. Like, that's that's not the way teaching history works. Like, we have to grapple with things that make us uncomfortable. I agree. I think people should learn about Clarence Thomas's uh, way of thinking in black conservatism. I don't see the College Board AP African American Studies course denying that opportunity to people who would take that class. John? I'm just unfamiliar with Ron DeSantis's, like, rich 
history in African-American education. I, I don't know what his area of expertise is there. He's getting everything in the world he wants out of this by having the discussion. I'm just glad there's not serious issues facing the state of Florida or other states in the country or the United States of America right now where, where there's not more time being used to discuss those things. Uh, look, this, this means whatever you, do you want it to it? mean. I don't even try because I, because <laughs> I don't, because the, 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 it's being used by people as a political wedge, period. Full stop. If the goal is to teach the best African-American studies course, then get the best African-American studies scholars in a room, work it out. Do it. That's the solution to the whole thing. And I just, last point, Chris Sununu, I, have, I was brunching last Sunday, so I missed, you know, I, I missed Face the Nation. I didn't see the Typical. whole thing. But I saw the quote, and I've seen the quote now six times, and I still want to know the context around it, because it, when you just see the quote or read the quote, I don't know what side he's talking <laughs> I about. I, I, and so when That's you're playing it, point. part of me is, it, oh, oh is he coming down and defending Ron DeSantis, or is he going after Ron DeSantis? Know. I've only seen the quote, so I don't know, because That's you could I mean. take it either way. We are so contorted with whatever woke is and cancel culture. Again, I don't know who's canceling whom, but go ahead. Well, Karen. like. So the problem with Black Lives Matter, again, I would call it theology. It's, it's sort of a, a belief that is not based in facts. Um, it was, it, if but you, you know, listen to the founder, excuse me, uh, I, you said that I interrupted you. Let's, let's, be, yeah. let's be fair here. Sure. Um, uh, so the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, the movement. So I, I think let's distinguish between the phrase or the concept of Black Lives, they matter. They matter, obviously. But the organization, the uh, the actual people who run it, yeah. they are fraudulent. They've been uh, tried by the IRS to say, you are bilking people for millions of dollars. And Patrice Coolers, who is one of the, the, the founders of it, she has said explicitly, I'm a trained Marxist. So it is a political ideology that you are trying to force on young children in order to divide people by skin color. That is deeply problematic, and it is ideological in nature, and it is not neutral history. So as someone who, who represented many hundreds of thousands of white people in New York's 17th congressional district, I can assure you that the many thousands of white parents who took to the streets with their white children in support of Black Lives Matter did not necessarily associate with these handful of people who took credit for founding this movement. They were doing this in furtherance of uh, policing, rational policing reform and other racial justice causes that are widely, when you do the polling, supported by the American people, even if certain policies, proposals are not always supported by the American people. Friends, thank you very much for all of your perspectives. Meanwhile, parents on Capitol Hill today calling on lawmakers to do something about the scourge of cyberbullying and what it's doing to their kids. You have to hear these stories next. Parents on Capitol Hill today demanding that lawmakers do something about the dangers that kids face online, especially cyberbullying. This, as a new survey from the CDC, finds teenage girls are experiencing more feelings of hopelessness and more violence. CNN's Brianna Killer has more. This is my son, Carson Bride, with the beautiful blue eyes and amazing smile. Kristen Bride is one of a growing number of parents who have lost a child to cyberbullying. Her 16-year-old son, Carson, died by suicide in 2020 after he was harassed on a Snapchat-integrated app that allowed users to send anonymous messages. I woke to the complete shock and horror that Carson had hung himself in our garage while we slept. We discovered that Carson had received nearly 100 negative, harassing 
sexually explicit and humiliating messages, including 40 in just one day. She's part of a group that testified on Capitol Hill about the dangers children face online. The constant exposure to unrealistic body standards and harmful recommended content led me towards disordered eating and severely damaged my sense of self. And there I remained for over three years, mindlessly scrolling for five to six hours a day. The hearing coming just one week after President Biden's call to action during his State of the Union address. We must finally hold social media companies accountable for experimenting or doing running children for profit. The ubiquity of social media in kids' lives and the vehicle it provides for cyberbullying are also getting renewed attention as the CDC unveils a new report. It shows significant declines in youth mental health and increased suicide risk in 2021, especially among girls. The levels of poor mental health and suicidal thoughts and behaviors reported by teenage girls are now higher than we have ever seen. And as the story of Adriana Kutch, a 14-year-old student in New Jersey who was attacked by four other teenagers in her school's hallway, has stunned the nation. Video of her attack was posted to TikTok. Her father said she died by suicide the following evening. Getting hit in the face with a water bottle didn't hurt Adriana. What hurt Adriana was the embarrassment and humiliation. They just kept coming at her. These social media platforms are operating in the days of the Wild West, and anything goes. Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn and Democrat Richard Blumenthal are reaching across the aisle to try to get legislation passed after it failed last year. Protecting our children is not a partisan issue. I hope that outrage will finally be channeled into overcoming, here's the really important point, the armies of lobbyists and lawyers that big tech has mustered to counter and combat this legislation. No more. There is absolutely no way that any one parent can feasibly manage the fire hose of online harms that are being directed at our kids every day. We need help from the federal government and we need it now. What's clear from today's hearing and this new CDC report is America's kids are at a crisis point as they are navigating a sometimes perilous online world, a world we never had to deal with when we were kids, but we're having to figure out as parents. Allison. Brianna, thank you for that report. Back with me now, Jim Walden, Mondaire Jones, and joining us, New York Times' Emma Goldberg. Um, Emma, how heartbreaking, how awful um, to see all these stories. I, I, there have been studies that show that when you add public humiliation and embarrassment, it compounds depression and makes people more suicidal. And that's what social media does. I was stunned when I saw the research on what young women are experiencing right now. There's new research that showed in 2021, three in five young women was experiencing persistent sadness and one in three young women seriously considered attempting suicide. And when you think about it, it's never easy to be a teenage girl. There's social comparison, there's body image disorders, there's all sorts of sources of stress. And then you throw on top of that the isolation of the pandemic, and then social media is like gasoline on those flames. It's just so hard to avoid the compounding of depression and angst. 
But it's really alarming to see it laid out in the data. And I think it raises the question of what are tech companies going to do? How are they going to answer to the um, increasingly strong connection that's being drawn between rising mental health problems and what their platforms are enabling? Yeah. Um, Jim, you have daughters. It's not a mystery anymore. We actually see in the graphs that the spike of teenage girls' depression, anxiety goes up the year that social media sort of, you know, hit, that became ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's a direct correlation. People have studied this. On balance, I think we would have to conclude it hasn't been good for teenagers to have this kind of access to social media. No, I totally agree with you. And I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we can uh, decry big tech, we can blame politicians, we can blame school administrators, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with the parents. And unless there is some amount of control that comes over what your kids get access to, you can't be really surprised when they when you allow them to have unrestricted access without any controls, and then, and then they access apps. That's not the entire solution. There are other fixes that need to be made, but the parental discussion with the parents has to be part of the solution. Yes, but I didn't know when I let my kids go on social media that the algorithms were preying upon them. I didn't know how pernicious the algorithms were programmed to feed them this garbage. And you won't be able to control whether someone else using the same app is bullying your child, right? And so I think there's definitely a role for more parental involvement in so many instances. Uh, But I think to the point of of someone who's being interviewed early in this segment, we have to make sure that we are holding these tech companies accountable. I say this as someone who served on the antitrust subcommittee, uh, who saw bipartisan support. When do you ever see that in in Congress for uh, regulating big tech, for um, making sure that companies are held liable if they don't do the kind of common sense content moderation that we would expect of reasonable people and of reasonable companies. Unfortunately, the tech lobbyists won, and it didn't even get a floor vote in the United States Senate, despite the fact that I think it would have passed in the United States Senate, yeah. given the votes that were available. Wow. Uh, my theory is that future generations will see, will come to see social media the way my kids see smoking cigarettes. Mm. My kids, when they see somebody smoking a cigarette, they think they're shooting up with heroin. Like, it's, it, they, they put it in that exact same category. And they say to me, but why, when you guys were teenagers, did you smoke cigarettes? Didn't you know it was bad for you? And it's kind of like, yeah, we did, but it was kind of just everywhere. And it was so omnipresent that everybody kind of did it. And I think that that's what their kids will say to them about social media. Like, why did you use it? Didn't you know how bad it was for you? My teenage daughters have said, oh, we're not going to let our kids use it. Wow. I mean, it's scary. I remember when I was growing up, there were websites like Formspring, Tumblr. There were so many points for young women to compare themselves. And now there's all of that 10x. And I want to highlight that the research is also showing that gay youth, LGBTQ youth were particularly vulnerable in the new CDC research. I was just going to say that according to the Trevor Project, in the year 2021, 45% of young LGBTQ plus people contemplated suicide. I mean, think of the kind of people who are the typical targets of bullying in our society women, LGBTQ plus people, people of color. It just compounds sort of a situation that already existed when it, when it came to... You and know, what's that the answer to that? I, I, I think there's no one answer. Obviously, I think members of society, private individuals have to do their part in condemning hate speech um, and, and other forms of bullying. Um, these companies have to do more to intervene so that it's less likely that there's bullying going on in the first place and so that those algorithms are not targeting people who are vulnerable in our society. 
Um, and then, you know, I, I think we have to obviously elevate this stuff into people's minds because a lot of folks who don't have children or who understandably are very busy trying to put food on the table for their for their kids are not necessarily always thinking about like what their kid is looking at on Instagram. Of course, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, Friends, thank you all very much. If you or anyone you know needs help, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You can visit 988lifeline.org as well. You can stay anonymous. We'll be right back. Why are so many distressed whales washing up on the East Coast lately? Since December 1st, at least 15 whales have been stranded on the North Atlantic coast. Humpback whales, sperm whales, even the endangered North Atlantic right whale. Four whales have been stranded in Virginia in just the past few weeks. 11 whales stranded in New Jersey and New York. So what's going on? Let's bring in wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin. Jeff, um, always great to see you. Let's start with New Jersey. Nine humpback whales, two sperm whales. Is there a pattern here of the reason that they're washing up or are they all different? Well, certainly, Alice, when you look at that map that you just had up, we're starting to see some sort of pattern. And you can see the numbers expand almost exponentially as they gravitate north. And if you can, everyone watch right now, you focus at that top arrow, that little point, right at that little point by the horn of Cape Cod. Do you see that little area? Yeah. That is basically, if you look at the lowest humpback on the second shelf, that's where they're going. This is nirvana for whales and many species, particularly the humpback, and the right whales go to this region known as Stellwagen Bank. What these whales are doing is they're migrating from their winter grounds where females gave birth, where breeding takes place, and then they go to their feeding grounds. In this case, Stellwagen Bank. Now, whales are feeding up and along the eastern coastline, clear on down past the Carolinas, but you find this incredibly Focus concentration on Stellwagen Bank because of incredible amount of resources there, Allison. They're coming to feed in all that plankton. It's what brings the birds and the tunas and the sharks. But here's the thing. In order for that humpback whale to get to Stellwagen Bank and the other various feeding zones, they have to cross shipping lanes. And when they sh- cross shipping lanes, they increase the the, the opportunity they'll be that they'll be hit by a large tanker type vessel, which is what accounted for the deaths of the most recent whales that we've seen. But is that what's killed all 11 of them? Well, it may not be what's killed all of them, but we know that right now being struck by a ship is one of the greatest um, challenges to the survival of migratory whale species, especially. So keep in mind where these whales are going. In order to get to beautiful, pristine Cape Cod, they've got to go through the maelstrom of, of, of an urban metropolis, which is New York, with all those ships moving back and forth and along the Jersey coastline. But it's not just being struck by ships. They have to deal with entanglements from wayward or what we call ghost nets. They have to deal with the ingestion of plastics. And um, in some cases, there could be disease. Mm. The latest whale to wash up, I believe, was a 35-foot in length female, which tells me that length, she's probably a sub-adult or juvenile. When you look at the uh, uh, at the amount of whales that do die, 
oftentimes you see a higher amount that are younger whales that are less experienced when it comes to navigating when it comes to feeding, all sorts of things. Okay, because the there are a dozen um, mayors along the New Jersey coast that have a different theory. Here's the letter that they wrote uh, this week. They say the, the unprecedented number of whale strandings coincide with ongoing activity from acoustic survey vessels for the development of offshore wind. While we are not opposed to clean energy, we are concerned about the impacts these projects may already be having on our environment. So is it possible that wind farm projects are killing these whales? Well, I would not say a wind farm project could kill a whale, but technologies to find locations where uh, that are using um, um, incredible state-of-the-art technologies like um, radar or, or sonar could potentially impact what with what we call ecolocation. Many whale species find their way through a very murky world, which is liquid, by sending out high-frequency sound waves, which then come back and give them their, their own internal type of radar. The whales that usually do that are like, uh, uh, would be like the sperm whales or the porpoises. Um, so there have been some studies to indicate that competing radar signals can interfere with their ability to navigate or find food when they're using echolocation. That is different than to blame a windmill floating on a or, or purposely anchored on a permanent platform yeah. impacting a whale. And a lot of people are kind of mixing that up. Yeah, but still connected. I mean, in terms of if they're using sonar to create the wind farm there, it's still connected. But basically what the Wind Energy Project in New Jersey says, officials say that they're using levels of sonar, they're, they're prohibited from using the levels of sonar that are so loud they could be fatal to whales. So that's just, you know, that's just one theory. Very quickly, is the same thing happening in Virginia? Why are those whales getting stranded? Again, uh, so when they do the necropsies in the whales, at least the ones that I've looked at, a number of these whales um, at those necropsies, and a necropsy is an autopsy for an animal, we're seeing that these animals have um, been impacted by usually by a ship strike. That's not to say that there could be some sort of detrimental factor coming from some sort of radar being delivered by high technology. I mean, that could be a player in it. I don't have the evidence to say it is or it isn't, but, I, but I'm not going to blame a turbine um, energy producing windmill on, on kit. Now we do see that Alice with other species, mm. For example, with birds, when they're migrating in a, in a place where an ill-placed wind farm is, can be very catastrophic for the survival of birds. Yeah. But as for a sedentary wind farm, once it's established, not including the technology that's evolved to get it there, I don't see how that would impact the survival of a whale. I hear you. But I mean, also, if there's evidence of a ship strike, then that's different than the sonar being used for wind farm. But it sounds Absolutely. like we just have to um, investigate more because it's horrible what's happening and how many of them there are. Jeff Corwin, thank you very much for thank your time you. tonight. We now know the winner of the record-breaking $2 billion-plus Powerball jackpot. We'll tell you who it was next. $2 billion, $40 million. It's the largest lottery jackpot ever. And tonight, California announced the lucky winner. 
His name is Edwin Castro. He's opting for the lump sum, which totals $997.6 million, which is a total ripoff, by the way, because that's like half of what he actually won. If I were Edwin, I'd be pretty upset. Uh, Castro does not want to speak publicly, but did say in a statement that he was shocked and ecstatic, adding that the real winner is the California public school system that will also receive $156.3 million in supplemental funds. But we think actually Edwin Castro is the real winner tonight. Thanks so much for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.